When writing this letter to the Colossians, Paul followed the standard pattern of written communication in the ancient world with his introduction there in verses one and two. You're looking there at your copy of the scripture. In verse one, Paul identifies himself. He, he identifies himself as Paul. He defends his authority as an apostle by the will of God. And then he mentions a co-laborer who is with him, Timothy, our brother. Look at verse number two. He addresses the readers the saints and the faithful brethren in in Christ who are in the city of Colossae. And then he greets them in his traditional way, grace to you and peace. I've adopted the practice of signing my letters, my emails with grace and peace, Pastor Matt's. And Paul then launches into the body of this letter with an extended sentence. In fact, Colossians chapter one, verses three through eight are a single sentence as Paul wrote in the Greek language under inspiration of the Spirit of God. And most of your English translations will reflect this. There may be semis, there semicolons, there may be commas, but there is no period until the end of verse number eight. And it may appear to be a run-on sentence, but it embodies a single emphasis. The, the single sentence in verses three through eight a single emphasis, namely that Paul is celebrating the word of truth, the gospel. And this morning I'd like us to do the same and I'd like to make seven observations this morning about the gospel from this single sentence. And while these things may not be new to you, they're certainly worthy of our review. Number one, the gospel is accepted by faith alone. The gospel is accepted by faith alone. Look at verses three and four. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. The gospel is accepted by faith alone. Now more often than not, when I have presented the gospel message, the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to another person, that one has left our conversation still unbelieving. And despite my perfectly packaged presentation citing all of the important Bible verses and using my most persuasive arguments, they fail to believe. And it reminds me that the source of faith, letter A, the source of our faith is God the Father. For you see, biblical faith is not the fruit of intellectual persuasion. I'll repeat that. Biblical faith is not the fruit of intellectual persuasion, but rather it is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 explains that we are not the source of our own faith. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? God's grace and our faith is the gift of God. Philippians 1, 29 says, for, you it, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ to believe in him. And so we think of the dialogue between Jesus and Peter in Matthew 16. Jesus asked Peter, who do men say that I am? And Peter answered, he said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some believe that you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter then gave his great confession of faith. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. 
The source of our faith is God the Father. It is a gift of his grace and when we then have the responsibility to exercise that faith in calling on the name of the Lord. The source of our faith is God the Father. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ. The object of our faith is is Jesus Christ the Son. And I would point you again there to verse number four since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So then it is not the degree of faith nor the strength of our faith but the object of our faith that is important. You see, more faith won't save you more and less faith won't save you less because faith doesn't save us. Jesus Christ saves us. It is our faith in the object the person and the work of of Christ. So beware of having faith in your faith. If you do, if you have faith in your faith, you will find yourself frequently doubting your salvation. You'll ask yourself, what if I didn't believe enough? What if I wasn't sincere enough? But dear friend, your salvation is not dependent upon you, but upon the work of Jesus Christ, the object of, of our faith. Charles Spurgeon once illustrated the the importance of faith's object by telling a story of two men in a boat. The two men were caught in severe rapids and they were being swept toward a waterfall and some men on the shore tried to save them by throwing them a rope. One man grabbed hold of the rope and was pulled to safety on the shore. The other man in the boat, he, he panicked and he grabbed hold of a seemingly more substantial log that was floating by and he held onto it with great strength. The man was carried downstream and over the rapids and was never seen again. Faith is represented by the rope that's linked to the shore. And no matter how firmly the man held onto the log, It only led him to ruin. He was sincere. He was strong. He held tight to that log, but he was dependent upon the wrong thing. And it led to his destruction. The person and the work of Jesus Christ is the only saving object of your faith. No amount of good works or religious ceremony or church membership or charitable giving or baptism can save you. Those are only logs that are floating by. It is faith in Christ alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. And Paul was thankful when he heard of the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus, verse number four. But there's more there in verse four. Well, I'll begin again in verse three. We give thanks to the the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and since we heard of your love for all the saints, the end of verse number four there, this would be number two, the gospel affects our love for one another. The gospel affects our love for one another. Genuine faith does not exist in a vacuum but will produce a changed life. In John 13, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And in verses three and four here, Paul is giving thanks to God for the Colossians' faith in Christ and for their love for one another. Because evidently, the Colossian church was not selective in their love. 
like the, the Corinthian church. The Colossian church had love for all of the saints. The Colossians evidently didn't suffer from the device of exclusive cliques like the, like the Corinthian church, but rather they had love for all the saints. You remember the Corinthians early on, Paul rebuked them for their div- divisiveness and their cliques. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, he had a right to the Corinthians of their love. On the other hand here, the Colossians' faith was fleshed out in their love for one another. And the gospel affects our love for one another. Turn with me to 1 John, the first letter or epistle of the Apostle John. And let me quickly show you a few selected scriptures. 1 John chapter 2. Look at verse number 9. Regarding this matter of love for one another, 1 John 2, verse number 9. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Turn the page to chapter 3, verse number 10. 1 John 3, verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested, colon. Here's the difference. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Look to chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Across the page, chapter 4, 1 John 4, verse number 20. Verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for He who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. You can go back to Colossians chapter number one. The gospel affects our love for one another. Stated positively, the world will know that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ by your love for one another. But stated negatively, If you do not love your brother, how can you claim the gospel? Number three, the gospel anticipates our hope in heaven. The gospel anticipates our hope in heaven. Verse number five, the the anticipation of one who believes the gospel message is a home in heaven. Colossians chapter one, verse number five, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So then, as some people believe that faith is mental assent, there are others that believe that hope is wishful thinking. That Bible faith is mental assent, that Bible hope is wishful thinking, but, but neither are the case. Bible faith is a confidence in the promises of God. Bible hope is the anticipation or the expectation of those promises being fulfilled. The gospel anticipates the inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, 1 Peter 1, 4. And really, this should transform our lives because of the hope of our inheritance in heaven. We now live 
not as an enjoy now, pay later mentality of our world, but, but rather with Paul, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And we have this hope, we have this anticipation and expectation because of the gospel. I think an example of this from the pages of the Old Testament would be Moses. Hebrews 11 gives us that story of Moses by faith, Moses when he had become of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. In the Old Testament, Moses, esteeming the, the riches of Christ, greater than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward by faith. You see, faith is, is believing in what you cannot see, not fearing the wrath of the king. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And Moses anticipated the promise of the future. I think of the missionary and the martyr to the Aka Indians, Jim Elliott, who he profoundly said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. But that is unseen yet in this life and thus faith. Believers hope is their home in heaven and we live in light of that eternity while yet unseen because we know our citizenship is in heaven and so we run the race to win the incorruptible crown, 2 Timothy 4 verse eight. Look at verse six again, Colossians one verse six, which has come to you, the word of the truth of the gospel, the end of verse five, has come to you, verse six, as it, has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. I would offer you number four, the gospel is available to all the world. The gospel is available to all the world and the gospel truth, the the gospel message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is available, it's offered to all mankind in that it reaches every ethnic, geographic, cultural, political boundary. You see, Christianity is not a a local cult that's practiced by a few fanatics, but it's, it's the global offer of God to all the world, available to the world for whoever believes. I love Jesus' final instruction to his disciples when he ascended back into heaven. He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost or the end of the earth. That includes the Western Hemisphere. We're grateful for that. In John's Revelation, he wrote this in Revelation 7 After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And the word of truth, the gospel is for the world, 
which is why we engage in worldwide evangelism. It's why we support global missions. It's why we ought to go, give a gospel track, and give a word of witness for anyone who believes, for whoever believes across the world. Verse number six again. The word of truth of the gospel, the end of verse five, which has come to you, verse six, as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. What happens when the, the, the gospel goes to the world? It's advanced by reproduction as people are being born, reborn, reproduction. And the amazing thing about the gospel is that the gospel still works. It still saves It is not returned void. This morning in our prospective membership class at the 9.15 hour, we heard the salvation testimonies of some. These that we'll present to you later this month for membership in our church. And they gave testimony, they testified to their salvation and how the gospel still works. It's, It's bearing fruit as its seed is planted. It's watered, it grows, and it reproduces around the world. It's a beautiful thing. According to a, a resource called Operation World, it's a, it's a resource that measures religion around the world. Let me just read some, some stats, some data to you. And this is a little bit dated, but I think it still makes the point. Historically, the darkest continent in the world, Africa, now has nearly 200 million evangelical Christians. There aren't 200 million evangelical Christians in the United States of America, probably not in all of the Western Hemisphere. In 1900, there were 50,000 born-again believers in Latin America. Today, there are 90 million evangelical Christians in Latin South America. There were 2.5 million evangelicals in the Soviet Union when the Iron Curtain fell despite decades of communism. Since then, that number has increased exponentially. Formerly closed countries like Nepal, Turkey, Mongolia, Albania, and countless others are being penetrated with the gospel. People are being saved and New Testament churches are being established. In 1950, missionaries were forced out of China leaving behind fewer than one million evangelical church members in all of China. And by the way, missionaries are being forced out of China again today, 75 years later. But after decades of persecution under a communist government, recent estimates range up to 150 million born-again Christians in China, mostly in underground house churches. Even if we take lower estimates of Christians in China. It represents the largest influx of new believers into the Christian church by confession of faith anytime, anywhere in 2,000 years of church history. It's happening now in our lifetime around the world. Folks, the gospel still works and it's advanced by reproduction as men and women believe in Jesus Christ. Of course, not everything is peaches and cream in worldwide evangelism, we know that. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, for a great and effective door has opened to me, but there are many adversaries. There are many adversaries. 
However, I think we can boldly declare with Paul in Colossians 1 verse number six that the gospel is bringing forth fruits. I hope you long for that fruit, to see more fruit, much fruit, fruit that remains. John chapter 15. There's an individual aspect of this fruit, and it's the personal growth, the spiritual growth of a believer. Once one is quickened or made alive by the Spirit, we bear fruit. We abide in the vine, we bear fruit. As we yield to the Spirit of God, we bear the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the gospel in our lives ought to reproduce itself in others' lives. Have you ever had the opportunity to reproduce yourself by leading another to saving faith in Jesus Christ? It's a great privilege. It's something you ought to pray for and and labor for to be part of that, that harvest The gospel is advanced by reproduction. That's what was happening there in verse number six. Number six, the gospel is anchored in the grace of God. It's anchored in the grace of God. This is how we began our service this morning, singing of that theme of the grace of God. The end of verse number six says, since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, how so? In the person of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 says that, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's a bit of grace, folks. His grace giving us what we had not earned, what we did not deserve. In fact, I think of the, the hymn, for nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And were it not for God's grace. You see, the gospel is anchored in the grace of God. Look at verses seven and eight. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the spirits. Could I offer you this, number seven, the gospel is articulated by God's people. Although the gospel, the the salvation message is anchored in the grace of God, God uses people to articulate that message and that grace. Romans 10 asks the obvious question, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Epaphras is the one who brought the word of truth, the gospel of grace to the Colossian church. And Epaphras was was evidently Paul's representative at Colossae because Paul was in prison, folks, by the way, This is a prison epistle. He's writing from prison. Paul is unable to go to them himself. And so Epaphras spoke of the gospel, the gospel of grace. And we too are God's people. We are God's representatives. We are responsible to be witnesses, boldly giving the word of the truth, the gospel. What would happen, God forbid, if Pastor Matt was imprisoned? It should be okay for me. It should be okay for you. Because you are still speaking, articulating the gospel. 
the gospel is articulated by God's people. And the urgency of our witness is because the duration of life is brief. The clock of life is wound but once, and no man has the power to tell just when the hands will stop at late or early hour. To lose one's wealth is sad indeed. To lose one's health is more. To lose one's soul is such a loss that no one can restore. 39 people died as I, wrote, as, as I just read that, that short poem. And every hour in the course of our service this morning, our one-hour service, 5,417 people pass from this life to their eternal destiny. 5,417 people have died since this service began. And most of them have never heard a clear presentation of the word of truth, the gospel of grace. The Colossians evidently heard it in part from Epaphras. I heard it from my folks. I heard it from a vacation Bible school teacher. You might have heard it from this pulpit or from the radio. At some point along the way, someone articulated the gospel to you. And by God's grace, he gave you the faith to believe the object of the gospel, Jesus Christ, and he saved you. The gospel of truth is articulated by God's people. Not too many years ago, it was all the rage, uh, lifestyle evangelism, that people will see Jesus in me as I just live as a good citizen, as I live a clean life. Fine, that's good, but it's not enough. You have to speak the word of truth, the gospel. And truth is a strange things, thing these days. I, stories of cows falling from the sky, I don't know about that. But there's one word of truth, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that truth will change your life here and after just like it did for the Colossians. By God's grace, he wants to grant you the faith to believe so that you might have forgiveness of sin and everlasting life. I hope that that is your testimony this morning. I hope that you have accepted this word of truth, this gospel. It's a faithful saying. It's worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth, the word of truth, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ of your grace by which we are saved. Lord, I pray that you would convict the mind and the heart of one who is not yet called on the name of the Lord, that they might be saved even this morning. Lord, I pray that you will convict the mind and the heart of of the many who claim to believe. I pray that we would be bold in our witness even this week. We thank you for these truths. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.